1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as the bassist in the band Moon Alice, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is someone I know very, very well. I've known for a very long time, Roger McNamee, the founding partner of the venture capital firm Elevation Partners. He was an early investor in Facebook before the company went public and is now speaking out against the company in a new book called Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. Roger, why is this a surprise that you are out there. I've known Roger Zelling. He's always been the most enthusiastic venture capitalist I know. He's a character. Roger, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: It is so cool to be here, Kara.
2: I'm so excited. And this book is getting a lot of attention.
3: Well, you know, it, it's a funny thing when you spend 34 years being a tech optimist. Right. And all of a sudden, you wake up one morning, and you realize Uh-oh. that everything <laughs> oh, you shit. have done has basically gone <laughs> off the rails, uh-huh. off the cliff.
2: So we can blame you, right?
3: Well, you know, I certainly blame myself. And so I had this moment of epiphany, where I realized I had to stop doing what I was doing and commit myself to seeing if I couldn't help repair some of the damage.
2: All right. So we're going to talk about the epiphany. We're going to talk about what you were like, and we talked talk a little bit of your history. But let's get into your history, because you and I go back way back, but you go back way back further than that. I got to Silicon Valley in the 90, in the mid-90s, early mid-90s. Talk a little bit about your background so people understand who you are and what you Yeah. Done.
3: So I first came to the tech industry in 1982. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Albany, New York. I had to drop out of college for a while. My father died. I had to earn some money coming back. When I came back, so I'd finished two years, my brother gave me a speak and spell. Christmas mm-hmm. of 1978. <laughs> speak and Going spell is the Texas, okay. Texas Instruments thing. Mm-hmm. Well, it really matters. All Texas right. Instruments thing that speak basically, spell. yeah, teaches kids how to spell. And, He said, because you can do this thing today, very soon you're going to be able to make a handheld device that holds all your personal information. This is 19 years. This is your brother? This is my brother, 19 years before the Palm Pilot. This is one year after the Apple II. It's still three years from the IBM PC, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is an astonishing insight. So I literally spend the next whatever number of years trying to figure out how to be part of this thing. I come to Silicon Valley in 1982, and they're not doing anything like that. They're still working on the space shuttle. That mm-hmm. was a brand new program. I mean, we weren't even making PCs yet. We were totally focused on the government. Then the PC industry comes, it takes off. I wind up spending, you know, entire life just living and breathing and totally believing in the Steve Jobs notion of bicycles for the mind. Technology right, okay. making well, right. the world a better what, place.
2: Had you been in Silicon Valley by this time? You had gone to college? Well,
3: I, I, when I dropped out, I moved to San Francisco. Right, and dropped so out of, I dropped out after my sophomore year uh-huh. and moved to San Francisco, spent two and a half what years What made you there. drop out? Well, I had a girlfriend that chased her to California, right, and then okay. my father died, and so I was stuck. Right. And uh, I had to earn enough money to go back to school, and so okay. it took me a while. And the key thing was— in the mid-'70s, you know, that's the era of Pong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking – I was – Apple got incorporated while I was in California. But I wasn't aware of it until the last year when the Apple II shipped. Uh, it's all of a sudden I'm looking at this thing going, Wow. What are you gonna use that for? Right. Mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. like obvious to me at all. I'm not a natural engineer. But the speaking spell changed everything that okay. same year. And all of a sudden I go, okay, now I get it.
2: All right. So you moved to California and what did you do? Where did you work?
3: I lived in San Francisco and I, I thought I was gonna be a journalist. Right. I'd been this hot shot on the school newspaper. Mm-hmm. I come out, I call the San Francisco Chronicle, I say, Hey, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. I want to be a reporter. And the guy literally bursts out laughing and says, Look, kid, you're a college dropout with no degree. We do have jobs selling classified ads south of market, which in those days was a
2: free fire. And is again, let me just say, but move along. Okay,
3: so then I make a call to uh, the community newspaper that's sort of the mid-sized thing, the Bay Guardian, the guy laughs at me and says we have job selling display ads south of market. I'm starting to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. Finally, I realize... The only jobs in newspapers are going to be selling. I did not have a selling personality. I had no. I was very mm-hmm. introverted then, and Shocking. I, I finally went to work for a French language newspaper because I'd lived in France and so I was fluent. I went to work for them, and I was the entire ad department. And i it was my first entrepreneurial experience, that a staff of three. And I had to learn not only how to sell ads, I had to learn how to trust people because I Why also had to collect to the Why did you just well, go
2: to the English ads place? Why didn't you go back to but, South of Market and get those?
3: Because I was too introverted to work in a large organization. Right. The notion of being a salesperson and a rah-rah, I mean, you know me well enough to know that if— You're a little
2: rah-rah, but go ahead.
3: No, I'm—but I'm not—, but I'm not Okay. Guy rah. Right, yeah, you're right. You're, not right. Right. you're right. Yeah, that's I mean a one time I was, f- I was your I was your favorite male lesbian for a while. until <laughs> Mark Benioff showed up. <laughs> yes he and is. Displaced now. me. He did. So it's so, true. so uh, anyway, I I just I couldn't do that. I worked in this firm where I was the only guy, everybody mm-hmm. else was women, and it worked perfectly and I earned enough money to go back to college. But the key thing is when I tried took all these engineering courses, but I just couldn't figure out how to make even a really large thing to collect all your data. So I decided I need to find a job where I can be around it. And when I went to grad school, I figured out, oh, my God, they'll pay me to be a research analyst. Mm -hmm. I got to go do that. And in those days, that was like an academic job. It It didn't pay well. You know, there was no chance of of becoming wealthy. Mm -hmm. But I go to T. Rowe Price. I get there the first day of the bull market in 1982. And they assigned me to tech. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and realize, wow, for the next 34 years, I had this gale force tailwind. You can explain every good thing that ever happened to me based on that starting condition of mm-hmm. that day and that cover. What was through. the company you were covering? Well, at the beginning, uh, the very first ones, because it was 82, I covered defense electronics and mm-hmm. software. Right. And software in those days was computer associates and MSA, and I don't okay. think there was anything else. Right. And you know, PCs were still in the future, and it just not
2: IBM, not Apple.
3: N- no, no, Apple. Uh, Apple was. Um, you know, there was somebody who covered hardware. Mm-hmm. Hardware was its own category. Mm-hmm. T. Rowe Price had a big tech group, right? And so I had software and the defense electronics and 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 the space program, and uh, it was. I mean, it just—it it, was—I was so badly prepared for that job.
2: And so you went in and you did research reports on all of these I jobs. did research
3: reports right. in a bull marker, which meant everything you recommended went up. So if you ever right. were cautious, that was a mistake. Yeah. And the key inflection point occurred in, I believe it was 87. I went to a conference and, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out how to do this PC thing. And these guys were unloading amplifiers and guitars from the back of a car. And it turned out they were having a jam session. Mm-hmm. They invited me to go along. And I'd been playing— at happy hours forever. I knew hundreds of songs, and everybody else knew one verse or one chorus, mm-hmm. but nobody knew a whole song. So I be, was welcomed in, and that meant that I suddenly was playing music with Paul Allen from Microsoft and Philippe Kahn from Borland and the chief technology officer at Apple and all these other big mucky right. mucks in the industry, right. and suddenly I'm part of the social structure completely Which by accident. Important. It was Yeah, because these guys didn't go to bars. They didn't go and do weird stuff. They had jam sessions, mm-hmm. and... That was something I knew how to do, right. and you know, one thing led to another, and I evolved this notion where I just followed the industry around, which in those days, Aunt Mel sat in an office with a computer and a spreadsheet and read faxes, and it's like, I'm going, nah, I'm not going to do that. My wife was a professor in Philadelphia. My job was in Baltimore, I figured if I'm not going to be home at night. I might as well be traveling, and my boss, bless his heart, said, you go for it, and so I did, and- um, created this model that worked for me, and it really worked so for So, you're the PC here being Interf- an
2: analyst at Zero Price. How did you move to investment?
3: So, what happened is the natural progression is you're an analyst, and then if they think you've got potential, they let you run some money. In right. 85, they let me be in charge of the technology portion of the f- biggest emerging growth fund that they had, it was. which the New Horizons Fund. And the key thing was there were no tech funds until, mm-hmm. I want to say, 86 or 87. That's so, right. it was the biggest pool of tech money out there. And... I had one insight. I decided I wasn't going to own anything that had been founded after Apple. Huh. Or before Apple. Excuse me. Nothing before Apple. Right. I was only going to own the microprocessor generation company. So, I, I could see. own— You
2: wanted all the fresh— you
3: know. I wanted fresh. So, it meant I basically sold all the old guard guys. Well, if you picked only one decision in the 80s, being negative on mainframes and minicomputers basically gave you a huge relative advantage in an industry where relative mm-hmm. advantage was the only thing you cared about. And so— You know, I I got really, really lucky. I mean, I probably made three great decisions at T. Rowe Price, and and the net result was I finished the 80s. They created a science and technology fund in 87. It starts the 1st of uh, October of 1987. The crash happens 19 days later. Mm -hmm. I'm not managing the fund, but it's down 31% after one month. Mm -hmm. And it's like the firm's going, oh, my God, we just put our two best guys in this thing. We've doomed them. Six months later, they moved them out, and they said, Roger. You're going to run it. And I said, Only if I get to run it my way. And they said, What's your way? And I said, I don't know, but it won't be your way.
2: Right, right. And so
3: <laughs> the fund was this tiny little thing. They figured it was doing How much? I think it was 10 million bucks yeah. in assets. That was I mean, a lot then. Well, not really. Yeah, I mean, still, it you small. know, they yeah, went yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, 10 was not, it mm-hmm. wasn't ever going to break even at that level. And so I took uh, over the fund and I basically decided to concentrate. I would have 50, 60% of the fund in. 10 holdings. And, you know, there were some really scary moments like 1990 when the Kuwait invasion happened Mm -hmm. simultaneously with Oracle missing. Mm -hmm. You know, Oracle had been growing 100% year over year forever. In the summer of 90 that finally failed, I had 12% of the fund in Oracle. The stock was down 30 some odd percent on one day. Chips and technologies got blown up with the... uh, I mean, I had three positions that were each ten or percent or more. Well, I mean the fund was down I wanna say thirty five or forty percent in, Mm -hmm. you know, a month. And it was like I had my own personal crash. And what was amazing though was that I realized that the Kuwait thing didn't matter because Windows had come out in May and that Windows was gonna be the first time tech had a bull market. You know, it went through the 80s, lagging terribly because the big guys were all getting Mm -hmm. killed. But I said, Microsoft is changing everything. I'm going to load up. I'm going to just get rid of the things that had killed me and pile into Microsoft and things like that. Long story short, between September of 1990 and uh, the end of March of 91, so over six months, the fund was up over 100 percent, Right, and all of a sudden, Having had great years before that, I suddenly had the top fund of any kind. Mm-hmm. And at which point I'm going, betting on really Microsoft. Cool. Well, actually, it wasn't Microsoft. I was betting on everybody but Microsoft mm-hmm. for a weird reason. But anyway, long story short, in parallel, I'd been doing venture investors. T. Rose started a late-stage fund. So I put money into Electronic Arts and Sybase and Radius and a few other things. Mm-hmm. But they were all Kleiner Perkins companies. And I got to know John Dorn in the fall of 1990, right at the bottom of that – because uh, most
2: of the funding of tech had come from venture capital most of the big most fund, of it. besides and, the IPOs
3: and there weren't that many companies right, there as weren't. you remember no, there'd I'd be remember. maybe I 10 IPOs a when I
2: showed up yeah there'd
3: be like 10 IPOs a year one of which would become a monster company right. and, and but john was the hot right? yeah. john was the hot young guy he'd mm-hmm. done compaq he'd done lotus he'd done uh, sun microsystems and we hit it off and Anyway, long story short, in fall 1990, one of their partners, one of their investors said, you guys ought to start a crossover fund. You ought to get that guy magnemi to run it. Mm-hmm. So he comes up to me at Comdex, which is the big which trade was, show. was the big trade and show. And Sheldon Adelson, oh, now God. the casino magnate, so that's owned how he it. That's how he made his louker. first money. Yeah. And John comes up to me and says, one of our investors wants us to do this. What do you think? And I said, when do we start? I actually was working on a business plan to do exactly that with mm-hmm. him. What I didn't realize is he had never given even one second of thought except for this one conversation. (laughs) So, he leaves the thing and doesn't think about it again. Meanwhile, that night, I stay up all night long, Mm -hmm. finishing the plan, which I send him like the next day. Nothing happens. But anyway, long story short, a series of miracles occurs. And I wind up persuading Kleiner Perkins that I have this idea and they run it through a ringer because we're going to create a fund in the It's the first time they've ever had a mm-hmm. subsidiary. And we called it Integral Capital Partners, and I brought a guy from, uh, who was my partner at T. Rowe, I John, John Powell. Bars, yeah. And uh, we decided to raise the money from the only people in America who thought tech was a good place to invest, which are basically the CEOs of the tech industry. Mm -hmm. And so we had this little vertical integrated thing, but it created this real weirdness because you basically couldn't own any of the portfolio stocks Mm -hmm. of those people, you know. So a ton of money from Microsoft and Intel and all these other things, and you're trying to invest a tech fund without owning those stocks. Mm -hmm. And... uh, but it worked out incredibly well. The timing. So you're was, at Kleiner. Yeah, ni- but imagine getting to Kleiner yeah. in 1990. Amazing. You're there for the entire 90s, Netscape. which means
2: exactly. Amazon.
3: I was there when Mark came in. I was I actually got to be in the meeting when when Anderson brought in Netscape, and I was there when Jeff Bezos brought in and got to sit in on the first Amazon meeting. What I was did the, you think? So, with Netscape, Bill Joy had been talking up that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so, that we all were true believers. Nobody right. knew what that meant. Right. But, we, you know, Bill had convinced us this was the next big thing. And so, right. that part we were on to. Bezos was—he himself was the story. Yeah. I mean, you looked at books, and people had been trying similar things yep, use, using had. Ingram as a, as, as a Ingram. buffer. Oh, God,
0: the and, distributor. And
3: yeah. it hadn't really worked. But <laughs> Jeff Bezos was— arguably the most compelling entrepreneur I have ever seen. I mean, and he's really unlike, I mean, you know, there are a lot of great entrepreneurs and there are a lot of brilliant people and
2: he was exhausting. I don't know how else to put it. I mean— He would exhaust me when I visited. But he
3: was yeah. also funny, okay? Yes. And, and Goofy. He, 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 yeah, in a way that the other guys just plain warmed, no, okay? weren't, okay? He was, he was very so different he, So character. He had a lot
2: of enthusiasm in a way and, that— Yeah, and
3: he, was, he was just one of a kind, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, you know, going through all that period, being inside Kleiner— We get to 97, and Martha Stewart brings Martha Stewart living into the company.
2: Right, Omnimedia. Yeah,
3: well, it wasn't yet Omnimedia. That they stuck on the Mm. end. It was, you know, basically a home decorating company, and— Martha comes in and she's a total tour de force. Mm-hmm. John says we're going to slap the Kleiner name on, we're going to call it Omnimedia, and we're going to take it public in a couple months. And they got a multi-billion-dollar valuation mm-hmm. for a home decorating company. Right, and I'm going, right. oh my god! But it
2: was Omnimedia. Well, but Roger. The,
3: yes, but it's night It's the end of '97, and I'm going, oh my god, we're in a bubble. When this ends, yep. Integral is toast. Mm-hmm. So I, I go to Kleiner and go. When this ends, Integral's toast, and they look at me and go, what do you mean, end? This is Mm -hmm. never going to end. This is the beginning of everything. Yes, he
0: did, John. So I
3: go to our other partner, which was Morgan Stanley, which owned a small piece of Integral, and I go, guys, this is the end. And they looked at me and went, really? And I go, yeah. And they said, okay, here's some money. Go figure out what the next big thing is. So I went out, and we spent two years and came up with this thing called Silver Lake. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to go into older tech companies and give them all the benefits of a Mm -hmm. startup. Mm-hmm. The problem with the old guys is they stop growing, right. so then you're stock to the stock stops going yeah. up, yeah. and all the people leave, and then you go into this progressive cycle of decline. And I wanted to do it with Seagate because the disk drive industry had been going through this hot and cold That's cycle right. up and, and down. Yeah. And so we wanted to do Seagate, and we wanted to do the motherboard business of Intel. And those were the two examples we gave investors. So you're
2: investors. going to
3: go in and save, invest, cut costs? Well, no, no, forget cut No, the opposite of cut right. costs. Put, put we, were, we were the opposite of a traditional LBO fund. We were actually going to increase R&D dramatically and try to change the slope of the long-term cycle. Well, Steve Luzo, who at that time was the president of Seagate, was completely into this idea. Mm -hmm. And he'd worked in investment banking, and and I had known each other before he went into disk drives. And so, I would go to the integral investors and— the fall of uh, 1998, and I go, we think the cycle's coming to an end. We think you ought to do this. And they sign up for a billion dollars of this new fund, sight unseen. Uh, and I got to go out and find other people to work with. I have one guy, and we go and get two more and wind up raising, I don't know, two and a half billion dollars, which at the time was
2: it was know, a, lot, a ludic- it was
3: ludicrous. I mean, it was so far the biggest fund. elevation ever. was this. This was called Silver Lake. Silver
2: Lake, right? That's right. And yeah, and and so huge. Now. so
3: we basically take in the money and I cash out the rest of the integral fund in March of two thousand, which turned out coincidentally to be
2: perfect timing, the
3: end of the cycle, yeah. again, just dumb luck. And we put the money in Seagate and this company called Daytech, which was an online trading business, mm-hmm. now known as Ameritrade or TD Ameritrade, and and Gartner Group. And we do them all in 2000, right as the market is in free fall. Mm -hmm. And, of course, all three of them were magnificently successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, Seagate totally changed the disk drive business. Mm -hmm. And our investors, as a consequence, wound up going up while the market was collapsing. And that made people very popular. But then I had a health crisis, and I— Missed. You
2: and I had the same health crisis, right? uh, Well,
3: I mine was actually a little bit more severe than yours because yes, I, I had two scarring strokes and a TIA in my brainstem, and then I had to have open-heart surgery in order to keep from having more strokes. And so the problem with all of that was that I missed more than six months. Mm-hmm. And while I was gone, my partners realized, hey, wait a minute, we've got these three amazing investments. We've already got all the money. We don't need this guy anymore. <laughs> and, you know, and I was really different. And I'm yeah. not, and I got to be honest with you, I don't play office politics well. No, and you don't. I wasn't, and I wasn't well suited. I mean, let's face it, I'm not a deal guy. I'm yeah. really idealistic. You and are. I'm not motivated by money. Anyway, I come back and I talk to Steve Jobs and I go, Steve, you've just introduced this great new thing called the iPod. And he goes, Yeah. I go, But your stock is at 12 bucks. You got 12 bucks in cash and your options are at 40. That's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Steve goes, Yeah, but I don't want to do an LBO. Plus, I don't like your partners. Ah. And I go, Steve, come <laughs> on. we got to find a way to do this. Anyway, he thinks back, comes back and says, why don't you buy 18% of the company in the public market and we'll do this thing. You go on the board and we'll do it. So, I come into Silver Lake. We work for two months, come up with a plan that says that Apple is going to focus on consumers. It's going to do iPods and it's going mm-hmm. to do um, iMacs. And then it will do other things for the digital life. But it's going to create a new world for PCs, one that's away from the office and towards mm-hmm. consumers. And, you know, it probably grow 12%, 14% and, you mm-hmm. know, it will gain some market share and everybody will be happy we will make a ton of money and the Apple guys will do great things. My partner said no. Mm-hmm. They said you can't make any assumption of growth for any period greater than 7%. And I'm looking at him going, hang on, the company has as much Mm -hmm. cash on the balance sheet as stock price. You're taking no risk, Mm -hmm. and 7% still works. The math at 7% says Mm -hmm. this is a great investment. Why wouldn't you do do it? And we're not going to do it. I mean, it cost our investors an opportunity at over $100 billion in profits. Yeah. That was a little frustrating. Right. Then Bono calls up. I literally get a phone Bono call.
2: Bono shows up. Wait a second. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
3: so uh, I knew Bono because— I to hurry uh,
2: you up, so you get to okay.
3: elevate. So, uh, so anyway, I, I Bono calls up one and says, Roger, I got a deal for you. And we take it to in, uh, to Silver Lake, and they go, we'll do the deal, but we're going to do it with Bono, but not with you. And I go, what do you mean? We said, we want you out of here. I go,
2: Oh. That's what cool. What did you do to them, Roger?
3: Oh, that's a good You're question. Irritating. I think I got, we'll get to your irritation. I, I, I think I'm just annoying, made. right? Yeah. I, obviously, I was annoying. Yeah. But anyway, long story short, I called up on and Said, "Wow, I'm out of the firm." He said, "Screw them. We'll start our own firm." And mm-hmm. so that day, Elevation started. And then that is what leads I to I recall
2: writing about this. I'm now it's now remembering when I had to write about this fight. It, it was so yeah. Inane.
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we've been through a little <laughs> bit. But, I mean, all the way back to you at the Washington Post. Right. And so anyway, that leads I think it was us the to the journal by this time. Yeah. Yeah, by then it was, yeah, but yeah. but yeah. you and I first met earlier yeah, than that. Yeah. Anyway, so the long story short is that's 2003, and that's Elevation, and the following year, Mark Zuckerberg starts Facebook. So
2: tell me how you met him. And you were doing Palm too. You were doing the POM.
3: Not quite yet. Okay. Palm comes slightly afterwards. Right, right. Okay. So imagine that it's the spring of 2006. I get an email, maybe early something. I get an email from Chris Kelly, mm-hmm. who was the chief privacy yeah. officer at Facebook. And I knew Chris just a little bit, and he goes, my boss has got a really serious problem. He needs to talk to somebody who's been around a long time who is objective, basically a dinosaur. And I go, well, that sounds like me. And he goes, that's why I'm calling. <laughs> and I say, so what are you thinking? Next week, week after? He says, no, how about uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon? Mm-hmm. So Mark comes to my office. He's 22. The company's two years old. They have nine million in sales, no real business model. They're only still high school students and college students. Mm-hmm. They don't even have newsfeed, But it's already obvious that he has the answer for social. And to me, there were two elements. One was authenticated identity. You had to have an email right. address from a real thing. The second thing was he actually gave you privacy control because there, all there was in those days was what you put into it, and you could control who saw it. And I thought that MySpace and Friendster and all these other things had failed because of a combination of anonymity, which both allows trolls to come in and also makes your network complexity a lot harder. And frankly, just a a lack of focus. Mark comes into my office and I go, dude, you and I don't know each other. If if you go first, you'll never trust anything I say. So let me tell you the context for me coming to this meeting. He goes, fire away. I go, look, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook. And everybody you know is going to tell you to take it. They're going to tell you they'll back your next company. Mm -hmm. It'll be just as successful. You'll have 650 million bucks. You can change the world. And I just want you to know, Mark, I think what you have here is the most important company since Google, and you will eventually be bigger than Google is today. In my mind, that would have been 100 million users, Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking that's outrageously big. And I said, here's one thing I know. I've been doing this at that point 24 years. There has never been an entrepreneur who's had the perfect idea at the perfect time twice. Lots of people have had the perfect idea twice, Steve Jobs being an example, but getting the timing exactly right Mm-hmm. That takes unbelievable good luck, and it's never happened twice. I said, it won't happen to you. I think Facebook is the single best idea of this decade. Right. If you believe in it, you got to do it.
2: All right. We're going to take a break for an ad break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about what happened then. We're here with Roger McNamee. His new book is called Zucked. Wait, he just opened a soda. Waking up to the Facebook catastrophe. We're going to take the break now, and we'll be back after this.
0: Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial.
1: If you're an early adopter, you get that your
0: devices and your
1: connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: We're here with Roger McNamee. His new book is called Zucked, which is very funny, Roger. Uh, how could you not resist that? Anyway, waking up after the Facebook catastrophe. So here you are, meaning young Mark Zuckerberg. You're totally into his company. You're telling him just what he wants to hear, which is don't sell to Terry Semmel, don't sell to, to Larry and Sergey. Keep at it, which is precisely what someone like Mark Zuckerberg wants to hear. And, and,
3: and what he said to me at the time was, I, I asked him, I said, do you want to sell the company? Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't want to disappoint everybody, right. and I said, "Dude, wrong. So like that's that's the wrong mm-hmm. th- frame." Well, I think his parents and all were involved. So, and and really, a billion dollars mm-hmm. on a nine million revenue thing was right. in those days. You know, subsequently that became small change. And he had, but, had
2: a lot of troubles. He had a lot of CEO, COOs in and out. And he had a lot of CFOs. There was like uh, every every week there was some catastrophe. Some
3: catastrophe, happened. and so. I, the, was Microsoft
2: and, in by now? No, 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 no. no. Right. The, this yeah. this yeah. is
3: the first one. Right. But, but within six months, I think <laughs> he has at least two more offers, One, including a second one from Yahoo. Right. So the key thing was I, I helped him understand how to communicate why he wasn't going to do it because he had a golden vote. So it was easy. The entire meeting was only half an hour. Mm-hmm. But he invited me to come back. To his office, like a couple days later, and that begins a three-year period of what I would characterize as mentoring. What others have characterized as mm-hmm. mentoring, where I was part of this ecosystem of people he would refer, so he would talk to. You, about. Graham. Peter, well, the top people. I was in the second tier. The mm-hmm. top people would have been Peter Thiel, would have been Mark Andreessen and Don Graham.
2: Mm-hmm. And, Washington Post. Just because right. Mark Andreessen mm-hmm. was the founder of Netscape and became a venture capitalist.
3: And Peter Thiel was Peter Thiel, who was the first money into Facebook. Right. And those people. I mean, those people had social relationships with them as well as business. For me, it was just a business thing. Mm -hmm. And he consulted me on a very specific set of things. But what was weird was at that time, those things were coming up not every day, but certainly every week. So Mm -hmm. we were talking a lot. I was, you know, at Facebook – almost every week for a few years.
2: And you had been an investor at this point. No,
3: no, no, no. no. At the beginning, I did it just because I wanted to meet the kid who was starting the thing I thought was the coolest idea since Google. Right. Since, and you since Google. shove
2: elbow your way in like no, most no, venture No, analysts.
3: no, no. Uh, if I had, I'd still be at Silver Lake, right? Right, that's true. Um, so what happens is that I help him deal with replacing a bunch of people. I help mm-hmm. him deal with the with the Winklevi. Mm-hmm. Right, He has the oh, whole Dubai. crisis of that, that story breaking. And what happens is in the summer of 2007, one of their employees has a life-changing experience and needs to get liquidity, needs to get rid of his options. And, you know, it's not even – they aren't even real options. It's this totally synthetic thing. And he needs to do a transaction. He needs to do it quickly. And he comes to me and says, will you do it? And my partners looked at it and said, look, we can't put a thing that's that – touchy-feely into the fund. But why don't you guys go ahead and do it? So Bono, Mark Bodnick, and I bought this guy's uh, options. And Mark Bodnick is the brother-in-law. Ma- Mark Bodnick is the brother-in-law of Cheryl <laughs> Sandberg. Sandberg yeah. And was the way that I got to know Sandberg mm-hmm. back in 2000, mm-hmm. which is how I, Cheryl was the person who introduced Bono to me. And I mean, all of these things are right, incredibly insetuous. yeah, it was
2: always in her basement.
3: Well, ba- well but Bono, no, hang on. Bono was working on the Millennium... Debt forgiveness program. Cheryl was the U.S. counterpart, and he wanted to find out who this guy was who was helping the Grateful Dead with their digital strategy after Jerry Garcia died. And that person happened to be me. And Cheryl laughs because he goes, "My brother-in-law works for him," Mm -hmm. and so I mean. This whole thing—it's such a tight.
2: Well, yeah, I, what I wanted you to say this because it's such a t- ridiculously tight social and weird connection. And,
3: and 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 this book is written from the perspective yep. of Jimmy exactly. Stewart in right. Rear Window, right. right? It's one series of improbable coincidences so after you, another. So you
2: go, you start working with him, and then you buy this stock out.
3: We buy this little bit of stock, right? And then almost immediately after, Cheryl calls me up and says, "I'm thinking of leaving Google. I've got an opportunity to get a senior position at the Washington Post." Yeah, and I go, Cheryl, that is insane. Okay, I mean, Google is killing these guys. Meanwhile, Mark has come to me and saying, I've got to get a different COO. Mm-hmm. And light bulb goes off, and I say to Cheryl— I think you should look at Facebook. Mm-hmm. And Sheryl goes, "Oh, come on. Now he's 22. Mm-hmm. This will never work." And, she, and
2: Google had become a juggernaut at this point and, and she was, in she charge was of a critical part of its advertising. she
3: seasons. was she had was part of a three-woman team that mm-hmm. had created the monetization mm-hmm. in Google and AdWords, I think is arguably the Susan. greatest advertising product ever created. That's
2: her f- name, Shona, Shona and No,
3: no, no, it was Marissa and and uh, Susan. Susan, Susan, okay. Marissa, Shona Susan. was involved too, but go ahead. But what my point it was it yeah. was the all-women's team, okay? Mm-hmm. And they created what was—I mean, every—the great thing about AdWords was it worked for everyone. There was nothing deceitful about it. So
2: she was in a big place. So you are— Huge, you are, huge And, and her gift. thought about this
3: was? Well, her initial thought was he's so much younger and his reputation was, you know, the Winklevi, right? right. And right. so were you going to do that? And I said to her, Cheryl, humor me. His mother is a doctor. Mm -hmm. He has nothing but sisters. I think he is the rare person in Silicon Valley who can work with a woman. Just take the meeting. I go to Mark. I say, I think you should get Cheryl as your COO. Mark says, well, but she's at Google. It's a totally different problem. I'm going, Mm -hmm. Mark. Give me a thing that's closer to what Facebook's going to be than Google. Mm -hmm. And I said, and they went from zero to look where they are. I mean, this has got to be relevant. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it takes like two months, but they finally get together. And once they do, there is a chemistry, and Mm -hmm. it really comes together. And so they they team up, at which point then you have, uh, you know, later that year in 2008, you've got Beacon, Beacon was this product that Facebook created that Mm -hmm. basically followed you when you purchased stuff at retail, and then they would post on your Facebook account. And there was this famous story of a poor man who buys an engagement ring. ring, I wrote about uh, it. An overstock Mm -hmm. at a really deep discount, and Facebook publishes it on his newsfeed. Mm -hmm. That is how his fiancé finds out he's going to propose. Finds out he gets this ring for 27 cents. All of his friends find out. He's humiliated and... Anyway, Facebook withdrew it after a matter of months and Cheryl and I had uh, shall we say a disagreement philosophically about that and I realized it was time for me to you know back right. off a little bit in right. the, in, in let's the be book, clear, I, Roger let's
2: let's you can be irritating like you know what I mean to people you kind oh, of say sure. what you think no no and I'm, and they don't like that in Silicon. once no. they get to a certain period no. you have a, you have an opinion
3: yeah it's it the same problem we had at, at silver Lake. Yeah. I mean I'm basically there's a certain amount of time you like me and then after that, you know, where am I wear out my welcome. I still like you, Roger. But, but Still, but, I, can, I. But you're, you're a irritated. You
2: can person. be irritated. But you yeah. were very. You you do. You occasionally written me emails. I'm like that asshole. Yeah. Like kind of thing. And so, but you had been there for that time. And what was your conception of Facebook at the time? That this was the greatest thing in the world. This was going to be great. Completely. Did you see and, any of the seeds of well, this? No, so, and you were made wealthy by it. So Maybe.
3: Beacon Beacon was for me. Beacon changed my whole attitude, and I don't describe it this way in the mm-hmm. book because it just—it's a level of detail too mm-hmm. far. But f- for this audience, it's just Beacon affected my relationship with Cheryl, and it, you know I do describe what she says about it. She talks about being a team and succeeding and failing as a team, which is a philosophy she holds very deeply, and it worked incredibly well on the way up at Facebook. And my point to her was that I feared that whenever something went wrong, if you didn't have any accountability at all, then when things went seriously wrong, there would be no way to hold people accountable, no way to stop a problem, nobody mm-hmm. would speak up, mm-hmm. there'd be no incentive. Anyway, I realized it was time for me to step back, um, I did, and I go into the stands and I'm a cheerleader, and I love right, everything. Yeah. The next signal was Eli Pariser, who was at that time the president of On, does a TED talk about filter bubbles, and he mm-hmm. talks about the fact that his Facebook and Google feeds are no longer neutral and that these algorithms are tailoring to what they perceive he likes and they're trying to steer him in a direction. That was an important And he speech. warned all of us. And I was gobsmacked. I literally ran up to meet him after the thing. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this whole thing was I just assumed that once he called attention to it, Mark would look at it. And go, I don't want to do that. Well, you're laughing, but here's the thing. My My relationship with Mark, he was so high integrity and so high quality, okay? I mean, I really, I don't know that anybody's ever had a better relationship with him than than me because Mm -hmm. I didn't go watch the social network in part because the Mark I knew was different from that. And I just said to myself, you know. Oh, it wasn't
2: like him at all. First of all, he talked too much. And the guy in the movie talked a lot.
3: but, But all I meant was he'd grown up in my mind. Yes, but I, th-
2: there were there were worrisome signals throughout the founding of the company. There were always these uh, sneaky No,
3: no, you're, data you're,
2: sucking. Hang mentality. on. You're you're
3: but, completely right. right. I'm just saying I had a lot of personal interaction with him. Dozens and He's dozens lovely. of meetings, and he was fantastic He's with lovely. me. And he only asked me about things where he was prepared to take my advice. And so it was from a mentoring point of view, it literally couldn't. No, have he been seeks
2: better. advice. I I've had and, that experience. And, and, and my experience with
3: Cheryl, other than the Beacon thing, was also flawless. I loved them both. They were mm-hmm. really, I was, I really liked them. So I yeah. was, a, I was a cheerleader. And so in 2016, when I start to see things that aren't right, what caused you? What
2: was the epiphany? Lately? So
3: so the key thing is, it was a series of of, of things that happened. It started with uh, the New Hampshire primary where there were these Facebook groups ostensibly associated with the campaign of Bernie Sanders. It'd be like Bay Area for Bernie and mm-hmm. Burners for Bernie and things like that. That would have these deeply misogynistic, basically uh, counterfactual memes mm-hmm. and about Hillary Clinton. And what the thing that caught my eye was that it went from like one meme shared by one person one day. Then the next day, a different meme shared by four people. The next day, a different meme shared by 16 people, which told me, because I'd done Facebook groups for Moon Alice, my band, that somebody was paying money to get people into these groups. I'm going, I went and looked at the groups, the only thing they were doing were these memes. Mm -hmm. I'm going- What's happening? What's going on here? Then a month later, Facebook expelled a, a company that was scraping data, basically using the API to scrape data about people who are interested in Black Lives Matter. And they were selling it to police departments. I'm going – now, they expelled him, right? But the problem is the damage was completely done. These people's civil rights had been trampled upon. I'm mm-hmm. going, ooh, that is evil. Mm-hmm. And they're using the ad tools. And then Brexit happens. And, the, you know, England – or the United Kingdom votes to leave the European Union. There was an eight-point swing between the final day polling and the outcome. In favor of Leave, and Leave had been all over Facebook. Remain had not, and Leave had this incredibly incendiary ad campaign. And I'm thinking to myself, what if there's something about the algorithms that's giving an advantage here? Right. And keep in mind, I left Chris in Riley 2009. They don't really do the the you know the beginning of all of the stuff that's kind of creepy and and and. Uh, psychological, really, it begins in 2011. So, I'd missed all that. So, I'm had not you prepared. you not paid
2: attention when they did all the partnerships? Remember that, I think it was 2008 or nine, where he had that one F8. I was creeped out right then. I was like, what?
3: I, so, I went there, and I missed the signal, okay? Yeah. I was there with you, and I looked at it, and I'm going, I wasn't sure what they meant, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and what should have thrown me off was that the scale of the people he was doing them with mm-hmm. was too big unless he was giving something really magical That's right. right i mean how in god's name would you get microsoft and all these other people into partnerships unless you were giving them magic beans and i wanted to believe right mm-hmm. i want, i liked them right and so anyway it's it is what it was and so, well,
2: everybody was along for the ride. You had Yuri Milner coming in with the money. You had the public uh, offering. You Yuri Milner
3: myself. scared the hell out of me. Okay, really? From, so it, that's that's another signal that okay. I that I noted but didn't know how to factor in. <laughs> and by the way, well, this I knew is a nothing, Russian investor. I'm just saying, huh? This is weird. <laughs> now it was just that this is weird as opposed to anything else. Anyway, the fourth and final point was that the Housing and Urban Development cited Facebook for advertising tools that allowed discrimination in real estate in violation of the Fair Housing Act. So now I've got four data points, and I had a bunch of other slightly lesser ones. Mm-hmm. And I come to you guys, and Walt invites me to write a, a recode mm-hmm. blog or a uh, op-ed about my concerns. And uh, I start writing it up, and I'm unfortunately really passionate because mm-hmm. two of the three things are civil rights violations, or two right. of the four were civil right. rights violations. And I grew up in a family where my parents were really involved in that stuff. And so right. I take it that that the thing I'm involved in is violating people's civil rights. That was, like, that was bad right. territory. So this was an op-ed. It was kind of emotional. And my wife, Ann, says, you really got to send it to Mark and Cheryl first because that's got to be your first loyalty. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to make— trouble. What I want to do is solve the problem. Right. So I never publish, I never give you guys the mm-hmm. op-ed. I just give it to them. And they got right back to me. In fact, they were incredibly polite, but also a little bit dismissive, saying, we just don't agree that it's systemic. But here's Dan Rose. You talk to Dan. He's your friend. He's the partnership guy. He was the partnership guy. And I was close to him. I, I knew him well. And that was a good solution. And I just said, look, I'll talk to Dan. We talk a couple of times on the phone. Then the election happens. And I'm like, just at that point, at that point.
2: here. Why did you get assuaged by it? Why by did what? you by them? Why did you get? Because I've Wait, had. Wait, you a, a, about it in
3: 2016.
2: Yes, in 2016. Oh
3: no, I wasn't. Hang on, I go completely non-linear. So there's only nine days that pass between the right. memo and the election, right. at which point I'm saying, Dan, you don't get it. You're telling me that the law. Provides you with a safe harbor for the actions of third parties, and I'm telling you, you're in a trust business. Mm-hmm. You have got to throw yourself in the mercy of the court. Yeah. You have to do what Johnson and Johnson did after Tylenol. You have got to protect the people. Who they use didn't your
2: want system. to. I wrote s- lots of texts to all of them.
3: Okay, so they so he, they were he he dismissed absolutely everything. I go on. He was for,
2: particularly dismissive.
3: I go on forth. Well, but I also think that was his job. Okay, he I was, believe he was given marching orders with me and presumably mm-hmm. with you, and he followed. No, we them. got
2: in a big fight. Okay,
3: so we spend three months
2: mm-hmm.
3: in this back and forth. I finally give up, and I start looking for allies. And then a miracle occurs in April, and I'm, I meet Tristan Harris right after he does the 60 Minutes piece. He, he had been a design ethicist at mm-hmm. Google, and he was on 60 Minutes talking about what he called brain hacking. Mm-hmm. And here, he was an expert in persuasive technology, and he talked about how platforms— because of the instantaneous— That so was the
2: second part, the, the addiction part. I had done a podcast with him a year before because it was so fascinating. Well, it, well,
3: okay, but I missed, your, I missed yeah, the no, no, podcast. But it, was,
2: it was an idea that these things are not good for you. It was the first rumblings of that.
3: The point was he came at a moment in time when I was looking for an ally. Mm-hmm. I learned that, okay, these people can use the tricks from magic, from slot machines, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of rewards thing, but also appeals to fear. Fear and outrage. Move your buttons— and therefore manipulate your attention. And in manipulating their attention, they can create first habits, mm-hmm. you know, with like buttons and notifications, and then they can create addiction in some subset of the population. And I call him up and I go, dude, have you thought about this in the context of the election? And he goes, to say more. We talk about it and we go, Oh my God, he has one part of the problem. I have another part of the problem. We decide to join forces. And after that, you know, we go to the TED conference where he gets, you know, Eli Pariser gets him on the agenda on two weeks' notice. Mm-hmm. He gives this impassioned TED talk in which everybody gives him nice applause afterwards. We go around to collect cards if people want to help us out. We get two cards. Neither one returns a phone call. Uh, it's a complete wipeout, and we don't know anybody else. And that's after that is when miracles occur, and we finally, uh, you know, get to Congress, get to Senator Mark so Warner. What, and,
2: I want to get to a couple things. One, you had made— Will you say how much money you made from Facebook? Did you want to give it back? A lot of people wonder, like, Facebook people definitely call it, like, he took all the money and he's he's being a critic.
3: Well, to be clear, I've given away Mm -hmm. most of the money that I've made from Facebook and had well before I understood this problem give it back to whom. An well, I know, but he, they were
2: like they, he made money from us like a cigarette. It's gonna, it's no,
3: no, the, sorry. Here, here, I think the reality is that's an interesting question mm-hmm. but I, I don't know how that would work operationally. I think I had two choices. I could sit back like everybody else and do nothing.
2: Right, which the most people did. Or I could, become, I could become
3: an activist and mm-hmm. take money I'd made from Facebook fighting them, right? I'm completely self Oh, it's happened.
2: Cigarette manufacturers' families are the ones fighting R.J. Reynolds. There's all kinds of examples of that.
3: But my point is those were the two basic choices I was offered. And people say, well, why do you still own the stock? I still own the stock because I don't want anybody to be confused. I don't want them thinking that I am an activist because I'm trying to knock the stock down, right? Look— I was obviously the wrong messenger for Mark and Cheryl, Mm -hmm. and I may be the wrong messenger for the people listening on this, but everybody needs to address the message. Mm -hmm. We need to talk about it now because with the Internet of Things and with artificial intelligence, the problems we're talking about. Are about to get so much right. worse.
2: Right, I want to talk about that in the next second. No, no, but, but I'm just saying. But that's
3: that's why I became an activist. Right.
2: So when you say activist, what prompted you? Because let me let me be clear to listeners who don't understand Silicon Valley. It is a tight club, and you put a stink bomb right in the middle of it. Like oh, they they you attack bet. you personally. Yep. Roger's crazy. Roger's nuts. Roger's you know a drug Roger. addict. Roger's a, you know. Right. You yeah, know. Roger had a stroke. Well, someone said that to me and I was like, hey, I had a stroke. So really not, stroke is not the way I want to hear that kind of thing. No. But it, it was an astonishing, very few people break away of, of prominence. And you were a person, you were, had long been a person of prominence and they were trying to sideline, for sure sideline you, but not in the typical way that you would think whistleblowers are, but more in the He's crazy yeah. kind of thing.
3: But they obviously – you talked about before. I mean – Everybody I, does. I it's could, not just – No, but I had an unusual personality for what mm-hmm. I do all the way through. Right. And that's been both the secret of my success and always the source of the setbacks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the point is I can't worry about the issues you're describing there. I believe it's really important that we talk about these issues. I have a biography that makes me credible in some of the most important circles for doing Mm -hmm. it. And the cost is very high. I've lost a huge number of relationships that really matter in Silicon Valley. But I also realized that I was at a point in my life where— I needed to stop letting technology intermediate everything.
2: But why did you do it? What was it? Like, well, you're, you're a political person. they ruined the election. I, what I, I what am, was it? Wait, no, you
3: were like, no. no. No, what I'm saying is that it actually didn't happen all at once. Mm-hmm. I mean... Reaching out to Mark and Cheryl was me reaching out to my friends thinking that they were the victim. Mm -hmm. And my basic belief is that I understand how 2016 happened. I mean, were there signals? Yeah. Did they miss them? Yeah. But in fairness, I missed a ton of signals too. So I think we're all fallible. We're all entitled to make mistakes. My real problem here and the thing that really energized my activism Mm -hmm. was initially I go to Congress. We help them get ready for the hearings. We think our job is done because our, job, mm-hmm. our goal for Tristonomy is just to get a conversation started. The people in Washington said, no, 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 no. This is just the beginning. We need you guys to keep going out there. And then when the Chamath-Palahipatia mm-hmm. incident happened, Chamath had been in charge of growth at Facebook. Yep. He gave a speech at Stanford in which he regretted his thing. It gets published. And within three days, he hasn't, doesn't just recant it. He goes out on the road and starts shilling for Facebook. Yep. And that was when I knew, oh, my God. They aren't even going to turn around with evidence.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That is what motivated me to become an right, activist.
2: Right, and it's Chamath, be- too, who's very outspoken.
3: Befo- and he's a poker I'll be, player. I'll
2: be asking him about
3: that. Yeah, too. so, I mean, he's a poker player. He's not a, he's not a shrinking violet, right? right? He's a very strong personality. So I look at all these things and I go, I never intended to become an activist. And now it's simply a matter of If you remember the Three Stooges movie, they're all in a line, they're looking for a volunteer, and everybody takes a step back (laughs) except one guy. Well, I'm the one guy. And my point here is, look, I am not the perfect messenger for this stuff. Right. Duh. That's obvious. I stipulate that. I'm going to do my best, and not every audience is going to like it. Right. But I do have a resume and some skills that I can use here, and as long as those are working with somebody, I'm going to keep doing it. But— As soon as the opportunity to retreat comes, I'm going back to playing music.
2: Right. Okay. So in the next section, I'm going to talk about solutions and what you think has to happen. But has it caused—you said it caused you relationship. Has it changed your entire way to deal—has it removed you from the Silicon Valley environment? You're like a leper kind of thing.
3: No, no. It's not quite that bad. (laughs) What I would say is it has changed the nature of my interactions. I was pulling back already. Mm -hmm. And so there were a whole set of new younger companies Mm -hmm. I was not plugged into. Mm -hmm. And that largely was a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. I started to notice with with Zynga and then with uh, Spotify and then with Uber Mm -hmm. that Silicon Valley's best stories were companies whose philosophy and value system were not ones I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so I passed on those three deals at very – attractive times. Mm-hmm. And my point was, you know, other people can make that investment. That's great. But for me, that didn't work. And I realized I couldn't manage other people's money if I wasn't willing to invest to in the right? things. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so I st- I decided that was it for me. I decided I wasn't going to be an active investor anymore.
2: So, you had no cost. There was
3: no... So, in that sense, there was no cost. But it was regretful, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the way I would look at it is what's happened here is as I've stopped allowing technology to mediate my life, I've re-engaged face-to-face with people. I've seen more of Mm -hmm. you in the last Mm -hmm. six months than the prior five years put together. Mm -hmm. And that's true of a lot of people in my life. And... It's really fun because I'm reengaging with the people I love, with the people I respect most. And many of them are my age. Some are younger. Some are older. But it's been really fun to reengage. So it's not like – I mean – there's some relationships that don't work anymore and that make me really sad. Yeah. Okay? I mean, I haven't talked to anybody at Kleiner in ages, and that really bums me out because I loved being part of that. Yeah, it's all right. They're jerks. And, No, I'm
2: kidding. No, I'm kidding. And, and, all right. We're going to take, take another break now. We'll be back with Roger McNamee. Uh is the author of Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe.
1: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: We're here with Roger McNamee. He's just talking about how Kleiner Perkins don't talk to him anymore, but that's mean main of them. What do you hope to do with this book? You, so you write this book. You worked with Congress. You worked with European authorities. I think in many ways, between you, Susan Fowler, and others, have sort of opened the... Open people to see that tech is not so benign.
3: Yeah, so I I, I give Susan way more credit than I give right. me, and you know this I give Tristan I, I, I give Tristan Harris right. more credit. I'd than say I I'd saying
2: it's me. a multifaceted and, approach, yeah, but Rene, these are all me- the same Rene, messages. Renee Rene
3: Diresta, yeah. who works in our in in, in this larger team, there's mm-hmm. Sandy Parakilis, who's now <laughs> at Apple. You know there there's. Tim Wu and uh, there's a lot you know, of us. David Me Perry. too. Like also and, and you, huge, right? And you know David Kirkpatrick. There's a lot of people who are contributing to this thing. I what thought, is it?
2: What do you think it is?
3: So, in terms of the writing the book and what I hope to get out of it was a mm-hmm. really simple thing. We were in a strategy session in Washington, and somebody pointed out that you get to a point in the curve where you can no longer reach a large enough group of people face to face or around the table in Congress, that you have to start to have a different kind of media plan. And we got a lot of TV, but there was no way to sustain that. Mm-hmm. And they said, somebody's got to write a book. And I thought Tristan was the right one to write the book, but right. he didn't really want to write the book. so. Mm-hmm. Again, everybody takes a step back. It's me, I write the book. And so what's the goal? The goal is basically, I use the narrative arc of my discovery. So I'm Jimmy Stewart. This is Rear Window. I see something that looks like a crime scene. I pull on the thread without any idea what's going on. I learn, and I use that narrative to teach people what they need to know, to understand the business model, how the algorithms work the cultures of these mm-hmm. companies which are the source of all the problems. Right. You know, not because the whole story is in here but rather because there's enough of the story in here so you can recognize the next parts as they come along. Right. And then I finished the book by giving three chapters of guidance. Okay. You know, and the guidance is how to protect your children, how to protect yourself, but it's also you know, how do you use your power with your elected representatives to get them to do the right thing? And then lastly, I tell you, here are the things I'm actually doing, some of which may work for you, some of which may not. Because Be
2: specific about a
3: couple of them. So Google. Google is the most intrusive surveillance company on the planet, mm-hmm. at least in—sorry, I should say at least in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, in China, they have competitors. But here, they're the most—
2: <laughs> But they're moving in there. They're, got, they're so, headed back there. So
3: I have, for the last year and a half— played a video game against Google. Mm-hmm. It's a version of Frogger. Mm-hmm. Google is the river, and the alternative products are the logs, and I'm the frog. And so, you know, whether it's it's DuckDuckGo or mm-hmm. Ghostery or 1Password or Exchange or Safari, whatever it is, there are all these products. And every once in a while, I'll inadvertently click on a map on some restaurant waiting. The maps are good, and then I wind up falling in the river, and I have mm-hmm. to go back to the beginning <laughs> and start again. But I actually had one period of time where we went two whole months without touching Google, right? And so that's like my high score. I do and I like challenge their maps. Well, but I was lucky because I wasn't using Gmail, mm-hmm. and I have. Managed to persuade people to let me get away with not using Google Docs, which mm-hmm. is the hardest single it thing to avoid. Yep. Oh and man, I'm so, so into the river. I'm so deep. Exactly. in the river. Exactly, we're all deep in the river. And the point is, you have to do the things you can do because mm-hmm. these products are really convenient and they're, they're good. really useful. And you know, I told so them why
2: because so, you think they're so they're, they're a and, surveillance. and I
3: also wanted to see if I could do it
2: right, right? But because you find them to be so intrusive from a from a
3: uh, well, and my point is, it was something I could do. <laughs> so, these things are so convenient. There's some there's some evolutionary thing about convenience that makes you choose it even when it's bad for you. <laughs> and so, what I thought I would do with this Fast thing—
2: food? Yeah.
3: I thought I would just see what I could do with this. And— With Facebook, what I've done is no politics. I used to do so much politics on Facebook. Mm -hmm. There were people who would hit my buttons and I'd just go completely ballistic. And I I bite my tongue. I just don't let them do it. You know, I only share stuff for the band in the book. I mean, people have pointed out, hey, Roger, you're talking about the book all the time on Facebook and Instagram. You're actually doing ads on Facebook and Instagram. And I go, yeah, why? Because Facebook and Instagram are the best advertising platforms in the history of humanity. And if you want to reach people to tell them about the problems of Facebook and Instagram, there's really no better place than Facebook and <laughs> Ironically. Instagram. Iro- well, Ironically. Well, actually, it isn't It isn't even ironic. It's just how it is, right? Yes. And so I look at this as there's no obvious black or white answer here. This stuff's complicated. My problem is not with social media. My problem is not with search. My problem is not with Google Docs. It's with a business model that basically says that it's not only, you know, in advertising they say you are not the customer, you're the product. Mm -hmm. But for Google and Facebook, you are the fuel. Mm -hmm. That's a better way to put it. And the problem is they they gather all this data not to improve your customer experience, although they do a little of that. Mm -hmm. They really do it in order to create other products that may never even touch you where you get no benefit at all. And importantly, they do this on the Silicon Valley model of shipping the product the minute it works without any consideration of the possibility there'll be collateral damage. And so there are all these toxic they chemical. have
2: no sense of consequences. That's one of my thing that I try to to push in on. I I, I always make this joke that they should think of everything as an. What would be the episode of Black Mirror if this product goes the worst? Then don't make it, if they, so, if, or if, or put in put in things in place to create it so that it doesn't get to that level. But that, they don't. The self reflection is so. That's the one thing I need to get through to people, this lack of self-reflection. I always say they, it's a miracle they can see themselves in mirrors.
3: It's not just Facebook. It's everybody. No, at, no they're just—Mark the it,
2: Mark it, is probably the worst. No, but, it, but
3: it, it is in this notion of what we're doing is so important— Mm-hmm. Right, that any means necessary to get there is justified. And of course, every tech company has always shipped products at the first moment and let the users sort out the problems. Mm-hmm. It's just now you're talking about global things with huge political power that's not elected and is unaccountable. Why
2: don't they see it? I well, have thoughts. So me. Let me
3: finish okay. one thought about this because I think this part is really important. I think the answer here is that these guys are like chemical companies, like in, in energy companies, that they there are toxic spills That happen as a consequence of their action, and the reason the margins are so high, the reason the stocks are so valuable, is because nobody is forcing them to pay the cost of cleaning up the messes they create. And I believe the answer here, the way you change the incentive, the way you improve the business model, is not through any other kind of regulation. It's by making them legally liable and economically liable for the consequence of what they do. So in Germany today, we have a new story about, you know, Germany coming down on Facebook because they think the data collection practices are wrong. That is a fantastic approach. Another approach would be to sit there and say, anybody who has a problem with the data collection processes, why don't we sue Facebook and collect the money? Mm -hmm. I think the latter approach will move Facebook a lot faster than the regulatory one because the lawyers will find some way to shimmy the regulatory thing. Mm -hmm. But if you make it about money...
2: Well, that's always been my thing, is that like they were like, they're so profitable. I'm like, that's because the chemical companies don't have to put filters
3: on their pipes. Right, right. When the chemical guys could pour the lead and the chromium and it the mercury easier. in the river, it was they were really high-margin businesses. Right. Once you had to pay for that stuff— right. So it, what about Section 230? Do uh, you think that should go? That was, so, that
2: was designed to create innovation. Now you're creating innovation for companies that don't need the protection. Well,
3: I would actually argue that the most negative forces— on innovation in Silicon Valley are Google and Facebook mm-hmm. and, and I would Amazon. Agree. I, would, and I Amazon. don't think Facebook
2: is innovative in any way. Someone asked me that. I was like, Facebook innovative? They just we, Evan Spiegel is chief product officer of yeah. Facebook, as far as I can tell.
3: No, and, and what's going on is it's just like AT&T at the time of the breakup, where they could have been doing cellular telephony. Mm-hmm. They could have been doing broadband data. They weren't. But they, those things were not part of what they were doing. And I think if you break up these companies you know i like 230 for small companies mm-hmm. i think there's some scale above which 230 doesn't make any sense at all and there's something where you go from being a kid to being an adult where you have to be responsible for the consequences right. and 230 is inappropriate in that situation and uh, but i think there's this a, is
2: broad immunity for people who don't know
3: right it's basically a safe harbor from the actions of third parties mm-hmm. and and basically the way the industry set up everything's done by a third party and you know right now you know, because of the ridiculous way we think about antitrust in this area, which is it only you only look at price increases, these companies have gotten away with blatant anti-competitive things against competitors, against suppliers, namely journalists and publications, and also against advertisers. And the great thing is that all you have to do is look at this business in economic terms as a barter. They're trading services for data. So, you have to ask the question, has the price of those services gone up in data terms? And the answer is they've gone up geometrically. Mm-hmm. All you have to look at is that the, the each individual app at these companies has been basically frozen for the last few years, and yet their average revenue per user has gone up geometrically, which is not the full answer. That's just a, a marker mm-hmm. for the fact that something might be worth investigating here. And the point I'm making is that These guys have changed the economy so profoundly with their surveillance and with this business model that it's one of those situations where there's a before and an after. And in the before state, you have the wrong vocabulary. You don't know how to talk about it. And I don't think they're evil. I don't think they're horrible people. But I do think they've been told their whole life that they're special, that they're always right, and they're not responsible for the consequences of their Mm -hmm. actions. And all three of those things, shall we say, are less than complete description
2: So how do you look at other companies like, you know, I've done these interviews with Tim Cook where he slapped it up, and the only reaction they had is he's mean. I get I'm mean a lot to, by them. I'm a victim. You're too hard on us. I'm like, I don't think I'm hard enough. Yeah. And it's a really interesting, again, lack of self-reflection. I, the the attacks, uh, you know, people say I'm positive towards Tim, but he's actually saying adult things.
3: <laughs> well, there, there are two things that I think are worth noting here. One of them is that there's a simple rule of, of regulation, which is You should always take the first offer. Mm -hmm. Google should have taken the $2.7 billion antitrust judgment from the Europeans instead of telling to buzz off. They should have taken GDPR. They should have taken the $5 billion deal. Now the thing we're negotiating is changing copyright laws to put YouTube out of business. And, you know, these guys, they're so – Cheryl's sophistication around politics is so great. I don't understand why they've had so much trouble. I wonder where the boards of directors are in these companies. Nowhere. Come on. No, no, but my point is— Mark
2: controls the whole thing.
3: Different point. Right. I mean, there's control, but there's also who's sitting there and saying, Mark. This no isn't one. right. you got to change, right? No one. You think and our deal would do that? No, Come on. Well, but I'm saying, some, some, why is no one in the orbit doing it, right? Why am I doing this? Because no one else is, Well, right? I think
2: probably in that board, I would say Hastings is probably, Erskine Bowles might be the well, other. Well, I other hope new. so.
3: But I'm just saying, we don't yet see the evidence that it's working, right? right. And the problem is, as you say, if Mark doesn't want to change, she's not going right. to change. That's right. That's the answer. And Larry Sergey don't want to change, they're not going to change. Right. And... You know, so as we look forward, the reason this is so scary is I think Facebook, at the margin, I don't see the future problems coming from them nearly as much as I do from Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. Mm-hmm. Because I look at things like—
2: Microsoft. That's interesting. You added them well, in there.
3: Yeah. So, here's how I look at it. And they're in different categories. So, there are two problems. There's IoT, Internet of Things, so smart devices with uh, either Alexa or Google Home front ends. And then there's the whole artificial intelligence world. And so, if we look at, at, at smart devices, you're now going to let the surveillance come into parts of your life you've never had it before. Mm-hmm. And you know, you say, okay, it's okay in the kitchen, you go, okay. And then you say, it's okay in the living room. Is it okay in your office? Is it okay in your bedroom? Last week, we got news that Nest, which is a division of, of Google that makes, uh, among other things, security devices, got hacked by some dude to may a family think that they were under a nuclear missile assault. Mm-hmm. You know, so these things not only have a surveillance problem, they also have Android as their underlying operating system, which is relatively less secure than some other operating Mm -hmm. systems. So, you know. And I just think we need to have a conversation about what are the limits. I mean, I don't think this notion that people can collect data anywhere, buy data anywhere, and merge it and use it with impunity, I don't think that makes sense. I don't think so. So, what happens? My point is I don't think it should be legal to sell people's location data. I don't think the telephone carriers should be able to sell it. I don't think that the bank people should be able to sell credit card data except under very strictly controlled terms. And, you know, there are a whole bunch of things. Nothing about kids, right? Nothing about minors. And yet they do it all the time. Then we get to AI. And here you got this problem of a childish approach. But you have a childish approach. Here's a situation where... You know, the obvious thing is to say, what do you want the world to look like? Do you want it to reproduce all of the implicit bias of the real world? I mean, think about mortgages. There's a thing called redlining where banks would historically restrict who could get a mortgage in certain neighborhoods. And they might do it based on religion or race or something else. Well, if you use only the data sets of the real world to train the AI, that's what you're going to get. And that's exactly what they did get. If you look at things that review resumes— Geez, in the real world workplace, are there any biases on gender? Mm -hmm. Are there any biases on race? Mm -hmm. If that's the only data set you use, they go right into it. But now, instead of a thing where there's a human right of appeal, it's a black box with no right of appeal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's deeply flawed. And you look at the facial recognition, same China.
2: The surveillance economy. Okay, you've got
3: all of these things going on in AI. That so that's job one in AI. Let's think about the top three use cases economically today. Number one, getting rid of white collar work. Number two, filter bubbles, telling people what to think. Number three, recommendation engines, telling people what to enjoy or buy or mm-hmm. share. Well. I step back for a minute and I'm reminded of Steve Jobs' notion of bicycles for the mind. That's about human empowerment. Our jobs, what we think and what we like and what we buy, those are pretty fundamental elements of what make us different, what Mm -hmm. make us individuals. And we're going to delegate the things that make us unique to a computer. That seems like the opposite of bicycles so what for the I mind. Got, we've
2: got to end, finish up, but what do you think is going to happen? Where, where are you going to lead with this? So you're, well, it doesn't sound on. like uh, you're stopping at all.
3: I want, I, want, I want to drive us back to bicycles for the mind. Okay. And I, I don't know if Silicon Valley can get there. I sure hope it can. I think the city of New York wants to go there. Mm-hmm. I think there'll be lots. You know, if Steve Case is going around the country. I think is, lots indeed. of, lots of people are going to like this idea because— we know technology can empower us and why we stopped doing that is simply a flaw of a certain group of people at a certain moment of time having power to carry out their vision and it was a genius vision on its own terms the problem was its own terms were not inclusive enough mm-hmm. and I mean, you've known me long enough to know that one of the things that really annoys people about me is that I have this tendency to be uh, non-hierarchical and to be relatively inclusive in comparison mm-hmm. to people in whatever jobs I've been in. And you know, if you're a beneficiary of of patriarchy or a beneficiary of you know your skin tone. That can be annoying.
2: It can be. Although the mirror comment, I got you on that one. Remember yeah. that?
3: <laughs> no. No, and, 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 and to be—
2: Just so you know, when he was doing pop, we're not going to go into pom, but he said, there's a mirror on the back that ladies could like it, and I literally almost threw a shoe at
3: your head. And, and correctly so. <laughs> correctly so. And somebody,
2: but I get your point. Somebody
3: corrected me on a thing I said uh, last night where I made a comment that would be typical of someone of my generation, mm-hmm. and it just was not sensitive enough, and it right. really annoyed me that I made it. But the thing is— this is the point I want to make. We all have an opportunity to learn from Yes, that's I'm learning from it. I learn every day. I'm learning stuff from you today. I've learned from 10 other people but today. why
2: don't they learn it? I'm t- I find two things I want you to comment on to finish up is I think they're incompetent to the task, and I don't mean stupid. I think they have none of the skills capable of doing this, number one. Two... I think they don't even—they see themselves as victims, and they can't believe people don't like them. That, to me, is really—that means they're not going to learn. And it seems that that, to me, is the end of any kind of era of a society when they're intolerant to criticism and they consider it attacks, valid criticism. And then at the same time, they actually don't have the skills to to, to take on these complex societal issues.
3: I think those are perfect frames. I add to the first point, the one about the skill set— I think that they believe that there is a software or an AI solution to every problem. Mm-hmm. I do not—once you get people into a, a filter bubble, then they take on to believing the thing themselves. It becomes a preference bubble. You cannot cure a preference bubble with code. That requires human interaction. If people are in a cult, you cannot cure that. People at Facebook and Google live in a preference bubble. They're so bought into their vision. and. The vision is the code cures literally everything. No, you cannot cure the—I mean, you, they created a lot of the polarization in America, but they can't fix it. Right. And so we have to fix it for them. We have to take that responsibility away from them. And I think that's not a horrible thing. Who gets it? Who gets the responsibility? Who receives it or who understands it? Who
2: understands and can fix it.
3: So, I'm a big believer that you have to change the business models. That I think is—I've now concluded it has to come from the outside. I'm very encouraged by Congress. We have 40 new members, mm-hmm. average age of roughly 40. Congress wasn't as bad as everybody thinks before because, one, there you know, Paul Manafort got raided by the FBI. So, you didn't see the last 90 mm-hmm. percent of the members of Congress who— who got after him. And there was a lot of really good questioning, and Mark did not hold up well. Um, but the truth of, of that whole thing is our elected officials understand there's a problem. What they need is our help to get it across the finish line. We have to tell them how important this issue is. And the, the punchline in my book is we have way more power than we realize. Because the elected officials want to make change Mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle. They just need us to validate it. We need to be pinging them every single day. Just think of this like an indivisible group. Just sit there and say, you guys, you need to—and pick the issue you want. Focus on children. Focus on democracy. Focus on privacy. Focus on on competition and innovation. It doesn't make any difference. Pick the one you like and bang on them. And bang on them hard. Tell them, you know, to read this book— The other thing you could do is, remember, you can change your own habits. Ask yourself this question. If I knew that by accepting a little bit of inconvenience, I could help to restore democracy, I could improve my own mental health and that of my children, I could regain the right to make choices without fear, which is to say have real benefits of privacy, and lastly, maybe even make the economy better and more interesting and more diverse, would I accept some increase in Inconvenience, and the point is, each of us gets to make a different decision. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I've shown you in this book how to do that, and what I do, and then you just make your own choice. But we're all in this together, and remember, there's only a few of them. I mean, part of the problem oh, with these companies—no, no—but but hang on, bear with me for just a <laughs> sec. They have blown up whole industries without mm-hmm. replacing them. They've forgotten that what Schumpeter was talking about with creative destruction was that you had responsibility when you creatively destroyed something, to rebuild something that was bigger and better and restored everybody to a happier place. And they have failed in that. They've been irresponsible. And we now have to call them to task. And that doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means that culturally speaking, the country was in a bad place. It directed them to a worse place. And now we're going to come back.
2: Right. Okay. So last question, very short. Have you talked to Mark or Cheryl since then?
3: The last time I heard from either one of them was the email on October 30th of 2016. The last time I spoke to anybody at Facebook was February 2017, and that was Alex Campos.
2: Do you have any confidence that they understand this now and are trying?
3: I, I don't know. I don't know. And my point is, it, at this matter. point, I'm obviously the wrong messenger, and so I, what I'm really trying to do is see if I can't help to prepare somebody who's a better messenger to talk mm-hmm. to them. I mean people don't use ad hominem when they're ready to listen, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so I'm I, I that's not important to me, okay. right? I I'm, I'm work I'm worried about everybody else, okay? Right. I'm going to focus on the 99.999999999% okay. and somebody else can focus on the top guys.
2: All right, Roger. This is great. You're not a crank. Stop at Facebook. I'm calling him a crank. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, it was great talking to you, and we'll talk more, I think.
3: Kara, please don't ever change. You, you <laughs> are good. a national treasure, <laughs> head, and I love you to death. Thank, Thank
2: you. you. I am not changing. I'm single handedly going to get a privacy bill passed in the next year. That's what I'm sitting Yeah, on yeah We one. got
3: one in California. Now I know we gotta, we do. We have I want put, a good one. We have to put teeth into it. I okay? agree. And then we got to do it in New York. And if we have New yep. York and California I set.
2: agree. That is one of my goals. It's ridiculous. Let, let's do that point. together. All right. Fantastic. Thank you all for listening. You can also find more episodes of Rico decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts and please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Roger, where can people find you online?
3: Uh, so I'm at Moon Alice on Twitter mm-hmm. and then the book is zuckedbook.com That's a really fun site. There's lots of good how-to things. Are you
2: just playing Frogger still on it?
3: No, like no, Frogger. Frogger is in my personal I life. know, I love it. And them. then if you go to on Facebook, Moon Alice has its own page, and I have a Roger McNamee fan page. And Tristan has stuff to, Yeah, the Center for it. Humane Technology is uh, com, mm-hmm. And uh, the one thing I would just say is this is something to be decentralized. Everybody can do their own yep. thing their Jared own way. Yep, Jaron Lanier does some great things. There's there's, no, but I mean, each person who's listening yep. to this, you don't need anybody's approval. Right. You go out and do it your way. Do the thing that makes you feel right. And yeah. Just recognize that, I mean... People come up to me and say, what do I do now? I say, well, what do you feel like doing? They tell me, and I say, okay, go do that. It's
2: <laughs> So Roger, so Roger. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks to listening to this terrific episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.